This is the Journal of American History podcast for March 2016. Yael Sternhell is Assistant Professor of History and American Studies at Tel Aviv University. This semester, she is a Davis Center Fellow at Princeton University, where she did her doctoral work. Her article, The Afterlives of a Confederate Archive, Civil War Documents and the Making of Sectional Reconciliation, will appear in the March 2016 issue of the JH. Yeah, Al, thanks so much for doing this. We're delighted to have you visiting on the podcast today. Thank you. So let's begin by thinking about your uh, uh, arguments about archives, these these living uh, uh, things, um, and you suggest that historians of the United States rarely look at archives rather than look through them. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by this and uh, what you think of as the kind of cultural functions of archives? Sure. So we, we all work in archives, and we all have our personal stories and experiences um, doing that work. And I think that for the great majority of us, when we walk into an archive, we have this illusion that this is where historical knowledge lies, raw primary sources untainted, unblemished, just waiting for us to pick them up and create our narratives uh, that, that will adhere uh, to the truth, to, to the history of the topics we're looking at. And I think that is a, a very, very misleading impression. We almost never, I would wager, ask ourselves, how did these papers get here? Who arranged them? Does their particular arrangement affect how I see the story that I am trying to tell? Does the absence of, of certain documents influence the way that I see the subject matter that I am considering? Are there documents here that shouldn't be here that are also influencing the way that I see the subject matter? I think that one of the reasons that we as historians of the United States are so prone not to be suspicious of the archives we work in is because in the United States, archives are indeed relatively open and accessible. Um, we know colleagues who work, let's say, on uh, archives in Russia. And going there is an entire production, right? You have to pay off this guy and that guy. You realize that the archives were organized by all sorts of sinister authorities and powers. And that makes these historians much more suspicious, much more skeptical, much more critical of their source material. And I think it's no surprise that the criticism of archives and the analysis of archives has become very predominant in fields like post-colonial history. The, the post-colonial archive is a topic of huge, of huge historiography and, and uh, of course, of, of uh, theoretical literature that supports and feeds uh, this uh, historiography, whereas we in American history very rarely do that. And one of the things that this article is, is trying to do is to draw on the critical analysis that has been generated by other fields in history and by other disciplines to think about archives in the United States and more specifically 
on a particular set of documents that is particularly problematic and fraught and sensitive, and that is the Confederate archive that was created by the federal government after the Civil War. So it is definitely a story about uh, the, the Confederate archive and the politics of reconciliation, but it is also a case study of a important mass of papers that was collected and arranged by the federal government and which we are very much inclined to see as just a window onto the past, but was in fact, uh, like every other archive, deeply influenced by the politics and social and, and cultural uh, mores of the of the era in which it was created. Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's, that's fascinating. And I'd, I'd love for you to take readers through the uh, the history of this particular archive and then what it came, the, the work that it came to do in sectional reconciliation. But before you do that, uh, talk to, re, uh, to listeners a little bit about what you call, and these are your words, the dialectical relationship between the archive's reflective and constituent elements. Okay, so archives and I think that may be an easier uh, concept for us to, to wrap our heads around. Archives reflect the societies from which they are born. They reflect priorities. They reflect what kind of authority is available to collect and arrange records. It reflects um, the, the amount of funding that is available to a state, to a private organization, to a private person to arrange an archive. But what is probably less intuitive uh, for us and yet equally important is the idea or the fact that archives also constitute reality, meaning the types of documents that are available in a given archive both allow for certain methods of governance. Go governments cannot exist without archives. Archives are often the foundation of government, but they also shape the kind of stories we tell, the histories that societies create for themselves. So societies that have only particular types of documents in their archives will only be able to generate particular kinds of narratives. Now, this is, of course, not absolute. There are all histories. There are you know, secret archives and collections that people keep in their attics and basements, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But generally speaking, historians work in institutional archives, and these institutional archives, they're make up their organization, the choices that had been made in creating these archives deeply shape the way that we think about the past. We can only think about the past through the documents that we can get our hands on. If we can, and, and these documents, their availability and their organization create our mindset as we look into the past. We have no way of looking into the past without these documents. These documents are in the archive, and therefore the archive in many ways shapes how we can see the, the, the histories that we're interested in. Yeah, thank you. So uh, given that now, take us through a little bit the, uh, how, how this Confederate archive was was cobbled together over time and took on uh, sort of different personalities uh, and different functions uh, over time. It's a, a remarkably interesting story, and I'm, I'm sure listeners will be fascinated to hear you talk about it. This archive was 
assembled uh, beginning in April 1865 when the Union Army marched into Richmond. It started collecting papers, uh, everything that could be found and sent to Washington was found and sent to Washington. At first, it was a sort of a haphazard um, effort, but then after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, uh, it truly took off as the assumption in the federal government and in, in, in the North in general was that the Confederate government was it, it involved in the assassination of, of, of Lincoln and that uh, people are going to stand trial for, for that and for many other treasonous acts that were assumed to be in the making. And this effort was undertaken by Union soldiers and officers on all levels. The papers were uh, sent to Washington, and the, the federal government appointed uh, Francis Lieber, who is a very important um, figure in the history of the war. He was the one to draft General Order Number uh, 100, which regulates uh, the conduct of the Union Army in the field. He's a, a leading uh, legal scholar and also uh, a political scientist, and, and he takes charge of the archive. And, and the, the fact that Lieber is both uh, a legal scholar and a, a kind of a historian political scientist is, is important uh, in and of itself, because the archive from the very beginning is thought to be serving two purposes. The first is the purpose of finding legal documents that will uh, assist in indicting the Confederate leadership. And the second is creating historical repository uh, for students of the Civil War to use in their future histories. And these two purposes go hand in hand and are explicit from the very moment that the archive is created. What then takes place is that the legal function of the archive is a huge disappointment. There are no sources, there are no documents, there is nothing to use for indictments. There is no proof in the Confederate archive that Jefferson Davis or anyone else in, in the leadership of the Confederacy was actually plotting to assassinate Abraham Lincoln or uh, to, to cause any kind of uh, mayhem beyond uh, leading a war for independence from the United States. And the federal government abandons uh, its uh, legal uh, mission in the archive. And, and what remains is the archive as this large, uh, messy, uh, quite unorganized uh, repository of Confederate papers. Now, for a while, these papers mainly serve uh, the federal government as it is fending off thousands of claims by Southern civilians who uh, would like to get some of the money and property they lost during the war. And in, in that sense, it does serve a legal purpose. But then in 1874, the federal government decides to publish a documentary history of the Civil War. And from that moment on, these documents, which had either been lying dormant for a few years or were being used solely for the purpose of the Claims Commission, suddenly they become crucial sources in this documentary history that Congress is envisioning. And despite the fact that there are a lot of papers, what the federal government discovers is that it actually is missing some of the most crucial documents to understand and to convey the history of the Civil War. And it is forced into a record-collecting enterprise in order to complete the archive and to offer a 
history, not just of the Union war effort, but of the Confederate war effort. And this enterprise of collecting Confederate documents, I argue in, in this article, takes a life of its own and is in many ways an instigator or one of the primary instigators of sexual reconciliation in the United States. Because the fact that the federal government has to work with former Confederate officials in order to obtain papers, the fact that the most avid Confederate defenders, the kind of the, the die-hard Confederates who have not given up even 10 or 15 years after the end of the Civil War, these folks become fact-checkers, document hunters, proofreaders for the federal government. I don't know how many people know that Jefferson Davis was basically working as a fact-checker and document hunter for the federal government in the late 1870s and the early um, 1880s. And what I try to show here is that the archive, which uh, you so uh, nicely put it, took on a new personality of a bisectional uh, historical collection to be published uh, for, for, for the benefit of, of Americans and everyone else around the world, it stops being a vehicle of retribution as it was in the 1860s and becomes basically a tool of reconciliation, a facilitator of bisexual reconciliation in the United States. So these are the same papers in the same office, stored in the same boxes, but in 1865 they have one meaning, and then 10 or 15 years later they take on a completely different meaning, a completely different role in American life. And thank you. That's a wonderful summary, Yael. And and of course, for the as you point out, for the Confederates who are uh, working with and and the back and forth between uh, Southern Historical Society. And uh, the officials in charge of the archives is so interesting. For them, uh, the enthusiasm, isn't it, is not just to collect these documents, but that they feel very confident that the record will support their very distinct understanding of uh, of the reasons both for secession and uh, for the Civil War. So they have a, a real interest uh, in in doing this beyond just uh, just the facts, ma'am. Absolutely. I, I mean, this is a very important point because the collection that emerges from this record uh, collecting enterprise, the official records of, of the War of, of the Rebellion, comes across as completely bipartisan and, and almost apolitical. But in a way, it is entirely political because these documents are meant to show both sides of the story in a way that is equal. The, the only difference between Confederate and Union documents in the official records of the War of the Rebellion is the fact that the Union documents appear first. Otherwise, both sides get an equal hearing. And the, the question of why the United States government decided to give both sides an equal hearing is a complicated question, which I have to say the historical record has not answered in full. There is a way in which I think that when this decision is, is being made, which is in 1875, there are the beginnings of currents of reconciliation, 
But I also believe, and, and this is what I try to argue in this article, is that the dearth of Confederate records in the Federal Archive, the fact that so many crucial records are missing and need to be obtained from the main actors on the Confederate side, pushes the, the federal government to commit to a completely equal and bipartisan collection of documents. The only way to get these Confederates to donate their records is to tell them that they will get an equal hearing and that the federal government will allow them to tell their story through the documents. And, and so there's a way in which the archival process, the process of collecting the records, dictates the nature of the collection and then the story that is told. And maybe this is a, a good point to, to say something to historians who, are, who do not work on, on the Civil War era. This is not just some kind of obscure collection that is lying uh, in the basement of university libraries. The official records of the War of the Rebellion is by far the most influential collection of records that civil, civil War historians use. It is simply inescapable. We all need it. We all use it. It is a treasure trove of information, 128 volumes, uh, about 1,000 pages each. And to this day, we use it completely uncritically and without trying to figure out exactly who assembled this collection, what does it mean, what were the motivations and considerations that brought to us uh, this gold mine of raw historical knowledge about the Civil War. And once we get into the history of, of uh, the official records, we realize that it is not raw and that it is not actually as uh, bipartisan as, as it would seem. It, it does reflect the, the spirit of reconciliation, and it is an embodiment of, of that spirit, which maybe takes us back to this tension between the archives both reflecting reality, reality but also constituting reality. Mm. It reminds me a little bit, Yael, um, about issues that, that I've uh, been interested in in the past. Um, for example, at, at Gettysburg, the decision to mark uh, not only the Union lines of battle by the Confederate lines of battle, which then eventually lead, of course, to these large reunions, which are pretty much a celebration of uh, uh, Anglo-American courage uh, in which there is intense remembrance of uh, some things and intense forgetfulness uh, about other things. But without question, those reunions very much almost like the, the blending of these archives was a very important part of of the reconciliationist um, uh, sentiment. Um, but it, it reminds me of, of that story. And, and rightly so. Um, the, the chronological point that, that I make about these various manifestation of, manifestations of sexual reconciliation is that the the process of collecting records, the the archival process in Washington, takes place before most of these better known manifestations of reconciliation. The, the our, our, our the crucial years are the mid 1870s, and that is is my way of saying that this came first, and what does it mean that it came first? Um, and and I I do kind of. 
embrace the fact that there there are two elements here that the, the archive is not does not just constitute it, it does also of course reflect a, a larger trend in american culture that will gather steam as the century will uh progress and will of course then be um on display in in these uh, various uh, large scale reunions that attract so much attention and and rightfully so and and what what i'm trying to say is that uh, that not only have we not looked at the archive as a generator of politics but that we also need to look at at the archive as a preliminary generator of of politics in this particular context mm, yes thank you so uh let me ask you this uh the the official uh name of this of this is as you said the war of the rebellion the official records of the Union and Confederate armies. And you make some interesting comments here about the use of the term rebellion. H how did they convince folks at the Southern Historical Society and and other important Confederates uh, who, they, who they really needed to both submit materials and also, as you said, fact check? Uh, I would think the word rebellion would stick in their craw a little bit. What were some of the conversations about that? So the, the the word rebellion um, is irritating to these folks, and it, it, it's always kind of stuck there in in the middle, and it's it's inescapable in some ways. But in other ways, it is entirely escapable, because as the process of working together on the collection gathers steam, these ex-Confederates realize that the federal government is in fact, completely serious about allowing them to tell their stories through their documents in an equal manner. When they're convinced that the War Department will indeed a, offer them copying privileges, which is a big deal. These uh, ex-Confederates are dying to get into the Confederate archive in Washington and to look at the papers and to make some copies and to publish some of these, these papers themselves in the Southern Historical Society papers, which is a kind of a competing publication. Uh, that permission is not granted until the federal government truly commits to the publication of this collection and is so desperate for Confederate records that they will allow these ex-Confederates to come into Washington and and make use of, of the documents that the federal government has kept under uh, guard all these years. And the nature of the correspondence really reveals the extent to which these sides move closer together. And so Jefferson Davis and Jubal Early, who's another diehard Confederate who just refuses to give up until the day he dies, they become convinced that the federal government is now serious and that their documents are going to get the kind of treatment that they want and will will see the light of day and and will shed a um, kind of a flattering light on the and the confederate cause and and I think that you're absolutely right that they are first and foremost motivated by the desire to tell the story of the Confederacy as they see it, as a just cause that did not uh, come to fruition simply because of matters of men and, and materiel, not because there was anything wrong with the Southern effort in the Civil War. And the federal government allows them to tell their story exactly as such, as the story of an army in the field and a government that is trying to manage uh, this army and gives the, it, the the stamp of approval and the stamp of 
federal authority to this particular story of the Confederate effort in the Civil War. Mm, thank you. And yeah, El, you mentioned uh, before we began the podcast that uh, this is a piece of a, a larger project that you're working on. Can, maybe we can uh, conclude the podcast. Can you talk with people about this larger project and how this fits into it? Yes. Yeah, so this article is part of a larger project um, about the postbellum history of the Confederate archive. And I am using the Confederate archive as a way to look at the Civil War as a generator of paperwork, as the Civil War as standing at the dawn of a new information age. And to look at this history of the Confederate documents that the federal government collects and then uses in all sorts of different ways and assigns all sorts of different roles to as a case study for the ways in which war creates paperwork and that war creates a new kind of paperwork in America in the Civil War. We often think about uh, the, the revolution in archival science and library science or in, in history in and of itself as the creation of the industrial revolution of these new technologies, of these new ways of writing and printing and disseminating information. And what I'm going to try and argue in this book is that uh, in, in America it is the Civil War that creates both a glut of paperwork, these masses, unprecedented masses of paperwork, but it also creates a hunger for information, for facts, for documents, for sources. And I'm going to use this story of, of the Confederate Archive uh, to explore this idea of a, a new information age in America and the ways in which the archive shapes this is both shapes and is reshaped by these new ideas of information. Ah, what a wonderfully smart project and a book that many of us will look forward to. We've been speaking today with Yael Sternhell, who is assistant professor of history and American studies at Tel Aviv University. We're speaking with her from Princeton, New Jersey, as she is spending the semester as a Davis Center fellow at Princeton. Her article, The Afterlives of a Confederate Archive, Civil War Documents and the Making of Sectional Reconciliation, will appear in the March 2016 issues of, of the JH. Yael, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Please join us in June for our next episode. If you have any comments or questions, please send an email to jahcast at oah.org.